right, turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy. Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. Well, it's good to see you back here tonight. And uh, oh, sorry about that. And uh, it's good to be back here. Uh, so Second Timothy. Uh, this is obviously a lot of us know already. This is Paul's last writing before he. Uh, is martyred as uh, a servant of Jesus Christ. Uh, he is in a dungeon that is well known in these parts here. Um, it's well known because it's in horrible conditions that he is in. Uh, basically, he is in a pit in the ground, hole in the ground. Um, it is dark, dreary, it's damp, um, he is cold. Uh, there's this, I can only imagine the, the, the smell that is rampant around, all around, and he is alone. Uh, he said, all have forsaken him, but, Tim, or, but Luke, Luke was there with him. Uh, there's been a lot that said that Luke was actually the one who wrote for Paul, that his eyesight got so bad in his latter years that uh, he was telling Luke what to write. It's not indicated in this letter if that is the case or not, um, but there's been some to say that. So, so Paul is, is writing his, his last letter that he is ever going to write um, before he is beheaded. And I find it fascinating that what he talks about here, even in his last moments, he's encouraging. He's doing the work that God has set forth for him to do. Encouraging young Timothy in the faith. Uh, Timothy, by this time, would have had about four years in Ephesus uh, pastoring a church there. He, he's facing all kinds of challenges, and he's going to face even more. And Paul is telling him, he's warning him in this chapter, or in this uh, letter of 2 Timothy, uh, what's going to happen, what's, what's going to happen uh, ahead, of, ahead of him, uh, what to look out for, what to prepare for. And then in chapter 4, he kind of brings it all together. And uh, that's what we're going to look at tonight. So chapter 4, starting at verse 1. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing in his kingdom. I notice here that Paul says, I charge you. He is in a way uh, trying to get Timothy's attention. To, to jolt him, to, to understand that what you're doing is in the presence of, of God. He's holding you accountable, Timothy. You know, it's a, it can be a daunting thing to be in a courtroom and to raise your right hand in front of a judge and swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That can be a daunting task. And Timothy's hand right here, his right hand isn't raised, but I can only imagine maybe his eyebrow is raised as he's reading this scroll and he is seeing that he is reading it before the heavenly, the, the supreme court of heaven, so to speak. This is a big thing. He's charging him. He says, look, Timothy, I'm not going to be there. I, I'm not going to keep you accountable, but you don't need to worry about me. Because it's Jesus that is watching. It's Christ that is holding you accountable, that's watching. And then in verse 2, 
he gives him some commands here, starting in verse 2. He says, preach the word. Preach the word. Proclaim the message. What authority does, does Timothy have to stand on? What truth, what message does he have? What authority does that come from? Well, he, he tells them that in chapter 3. He, he speaks of all Scripture is breathed out, is inspired of God. That is your authority. That is the truth in which you stand and you are to proclaim, he is telling Timothy. It is not your words. It is not your message. Your job isn't first and foremost to pat people on the back and to help them feel welcome. It is not to help seekers feel warm and cozy. It isn't to keep the sinner from being offended. It isn't to insert our opinions or our ideas. It isn't to change or twist the words so that they are easier to hear. It is simply to proclaim the message. Some think that's pretty blunt and pretty harsh to tell the people in the 21st century, especially that we are living in today. But let's, let's say that you are not, we are not in church. Let's say that we're in a doctor's office. And let's say that you've had pains in your chest that has troubled you for several days and your spouse has been on your case to get it looked at. The night before your appointment, you were seized with a deep pain that went all the way to your back and ran down your jaw and down your arm. So you look for a physician that will tell you what you want to hear. You'll look for a physician that will sugarcoat the truth and just tell you, oh, it's okay, nothing to worry about. No, you would drive right by that place. You wouldn't stop. You don't want a physician that will overlook a suspicious x-ray or ignore high blood pressure. You want a physician who says there's something about your blood that isn't right. I'm concerned about it. You want him or her to tell you exactly how it is. You don't even mind if he uses the C word in case you've gone with a growth and there's been a biopsy and they have come back with the test results and they call you in. You want them to tell you the truth, tell you what it is. And not to do so is called malpractice. And not to tell the truth in the pulpit is malpractice of the ministry. He's telling him here, preach the word, the truth, the inspired, breathed out word of God. This was an issue in the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 23. Uh, we are seeing there were prophets of God that were sent out. Uh, and they were not proclaiming truth. They were not proclaiming what God had called them to say and to speak. And in Jeremiah chapter 23, in verse 21, it says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, and they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil ways and from their evil deeds. He was saying, look, I didn't, I didn't send them. I, I didn't tell them what to say. But if they would have preached what I had told them, if they were to preach the truth, they would have escaped from all the evil that was around that, that was happening. Preach the word, Timothy. And then he says, 
Be ready in season and out of season. Be ready. Be urgent. Be willing to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. No matter where you're at, no matter what circumstances you find yourself in, no matter if it's convenient or if it's not convenient, if it's early or if it's late, if the crowds are large or if they are small, when you're loved or when you're criticized, when it is hot, when it is cold, when you feel good, when you're sick, be ready, be instant, in season, out of season. Timothy, you're going to face challenges You're not going to feel like getting up and preaching sometimes because the people hate you. They don't want to hear truth, and we're going to get that in just a minute. But Timothy, you have to preach the word, and you have to be ready for that. That's what he's telling them. And then he goes on and says again, reprove. It carries the idea of preaching must bring people under conviction for their sin. The word translated there, reprove, is a connection, uh, is the same word connected in the account of the scribes and Pharisees in John chapter 8, verses 3 and 11, where they tried to embarrass and ensnare Jesus. And you remember, they brought to him a woman taken in adultery. And the Lord's response was to stoop down and to write something on the ground. And, and then he said to them, he was that with Without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And you remember, he, he wrote on the ground again, and as he did, all the accusers were convicted in their own conscience, and they went away. Same idea there is, is mentioned here when it says reprove, preach with conviction. Secondly, the other one we see here is rebuke, and it just simply has the idea, it doesn't apply in the area of conviction as reproved, but it has the idea of consequences, or a consequence, and then it says exhort. Um, You know, if you just have rebuke, and you just have uh, reprove, it leaves people demoralized. What hope do I have? Just beating over the head. But I'm glad he adds it here with a balance, with exhort encourage, strengthen, instruct. It carries the idea as well as to beg for them, to plead for them. He says here, to, uh, with complete patience and teaching. Timothy, you're going to have to have patience. And Timothy, I'm sure as he's reading this, he knows already. He knows the people who he is dealing with. And he's probably like, amen, I need patience. In teaching. And then it says uh, here, the next verse. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine or sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. He says, look, it's important that you do these things. It's important that you preach. It's important that you are ready, that you reprove in your preaching, you rebuke, uh, that you exhort. It is important because there are going to be the times and there's going to come a time when you're going to have those who don't want to hear truth. They're going to go to other people that will tell them what they want to hear. 
that will, that will scratch their itch, that will make them feel good, Timothy. And by the way, this isn't the outside. This isn't the world, those that are lost. These are people in the church he's talking to. There's going to come a time where they just want to be lifted up, encouraged. Don't make waves. Fall in line and entertain. Dumb down your message. Do a lot of skits and fun stuff and keep them happy. And downgrade the preaching of God's word. But what's going to hold them together when their spouse walks out? When they lose a baby? Or when the doctor tells them they have cancer? What's going to hold us up when we hear those things? Or if something like that happens to us? If we're not grounded in truth, in God's word. And he's instructing Timothy and he's telling Timothy the value and the importance of placing God's word before, before anything else. Before feelings. And then he says in verse 5. As for you. Always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. He's instructing Timothy here yet again on the things that he should look, that he should he should be practicing and doing as a as a pastor, as a preacher of God's word that God had called him to do. And the end there is fulfill your ministry. His interesting phrase that has the idea of make full proof of your ministry. Carry out the commission that God has called you to do without wavering. It paints the picture in the original language. It paints the picture of a ship moving along with the sails set. Timothy needed to set his sails and make sure that, that, that all effort was toward truth Because there were going to be winds that were coming in Ephesus. Storms that were going to divert him to other areas and other ways. And as storms would come, it was important that he would set his sails to truth and not waver. One author once said, One ship sails east, another ship sails west. Regardless of how the wind blows, it is the set of the sails and not the gales that determine the way you go. And I'm thankful here at New Covenant Baptist Church. We stand for truth. We preach, thus saith the Lord, is our foundation, is our rock. No matter what the culture, no matter what the world tells us to do, we don't, we don't shift. We set ourselves to, toward truth, toward, thus saith the Lord. And he directs our path. This is what he's telling Timothy. He says, Timothy, set yourself to truth. Ephesus, there's going to be people there. You're going to have complainers, doubters, mockers. Stick to the word, Timothy. And then we're going to finish up tonight in the next three verses. Paul shifts gears a little bit. And... He, he, he talks about himself. And he uses the, the present, uh, the past, and the future. 
And he uses that, those, he uses that often in his writings, and he does here again in explaining things. And so this is what he says in verse 6. For I am ready to be, be, I am ready being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Well, he's saying here that he is, he is ready to be poured, poured out. It was a familiar jo- Jewish custom to pour red wine across the base of an altar, which represented the blood of the lamb given as a sacrifice. He, he refers to the same figure of speech in a little different way. He, he is writing in, in a dungeon. He, he, is, he is saying that all the things that he has done, think back at Paul's life. In, in all that he has done, he has given everything to the Lord, his fame, his money, his time, his passion, his reputation, his voice, his words, his gifts, his life's dream. Everything has been poured out as a drink offering before the Lord, a sacrifice to him. And then he says that he's ready for his departure. It's at hand. And in verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Three things here. He says, I have fought the good fight. Reflecting back. He, he mentions good fight. He, 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 reflecting back at all Paul's battles that he has faced. Reading this, I don't see anything of any regret. I don't see anything of him complaining. Only if. Only if this could have been different. He calls it a good fight. He says, I have fought the fight of faith, what God has called me to do. I have been faithful in that. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. God had called Paul to a specific purpose, a specific race, a course that he was to run. Just like each and every one of us, God has called us and placed us on our own course. And it's different than, than each other's course. It's different. He doesn't call us to the same one. And sometimes we, we're set out on the race and we run the race. And admittedly, some races are flat, boring Kind of like from driving from Colorado here through Kansas. Nothing there. Other courses, there, there are sinkholes within the first year. Wretched turns, surprising curves, unexpected sudden deaths that take place. Loss, griefs, sorrow. Furthermore, I can, I can tell you without a, a doubt that there was no blame. No blame for anything. Paul said that he had a thorn in his flesh, but he said, I got it sufficient. So, thirdly, we see I have kept the faith. Um, Lystra, uh, Lystra was Timothy's hometown, and he grew up there. In Acts, Paul visited on a missionary journey, and there, undoubtedly, he had a huge impact on the life of Timothy. Uh, he calls him his son in the faith. Many believe that he led Timothy to the Lord. 
And Timothy was able to witness firsthand Paul's testimony, his faith demonstrated, played out in front of him. If you remember, I believe it's in uh, Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas was preaching. And there were many there that thought that they were, uh, that they were God. Uh, they thought they were um, uh, a God that was there that were because they were healing people, and they began to worship Paul and Barnabas, and they obviously not being God denied that and told him no that 's foolishness we 're not we 're just ordinary men and toward the end, we see that they took Paul out and they stoned him outside of the city gates and left him for dead and Do you remember what happened? The Bible says that he got up got back to his feet. His disciples were around him. He walked and went back into the city. I can only imagine the, what Timothy, he would, he would have been there. He would have, he would have seen that. The effect that had on him. The, I'm sure when Timothy is, 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 is taking the scroll here and reading this letter that is to him in 2 Timothy, and where he said that I have kept the faith, I can only imagine that he's saying, wow, yeah. Maybe he's recalling the times in Lystra, the, the times where he, has, he, he saw Paul's faith played out in front of him. And then we see in verse 8, he says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who loved his appearing. You know who's on the throne during this time, right? It's Nero. He declared Paul guilty and sentenced him to death. But the irony is that there will come a day when there will be a reversal of Nero's verdict. When the Lord, righteous judge, shall place on Paul, the crown of righteousness. There are five crowns mentioned in the Bible. And I used to think, you know, I, I heard people, oh, I, I'm going to get a crown. I can't wait to get a crown. And, and I was thinking, well, that's kind of selfish to, to want a crown. But, you know, it's kind of selfish not to. Because what does it say in Revelation chapter 4, verses 10 and 11? That one day we're going to take that crown and we're going to throw it back at Jesus' feet because we're going to realize it wasn't us to accomplish those things. It was him accomplishing it in and through us. So Paul was excited. He was looking forward to that crown. That's why he spoke about it so often in the New Testament and, and told us about the crowns that we could receive, not for our glory, not for our benefit, but to glorify our Savior who, who, who is worthy of it. So tonight, I, I want to encourage you, and I, I came to think that, you know, Paul had all the excuses in the book he could have said from not serving God, even in here while he's in prison. Don't count the times he was beaten. He was, he was times where he was naked. He was, he was mocked. He was left alone. He was abandoned. 
he's here in a, in, in a dungeon that is no one's there. Everyone, everyone has forsaken him. He's by himself. He has all the excuses in the world not to write to Timothy, not to do anything. But he picks up a pen and he writes to his brother in Christ to encourage him while he's in Ephesus. So up to his very death, he is doing the will and the work of God that he has set for him to do. And what encouragement to us, no matter our age, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, we can serve and be a help to others. Doug Nichols uh, was a missionary at India in 1967. And uh, he gave his testimony, and he said this, that he spent several months in a TB sanitarium with tuberculosis. After finally being admitted into the sanitarium, he said, I tried to give tracts to the patients, the doctors, and nurses, but no one would take them. You can tell that they weren't really happy with me because a rich American, to them all Americans were rich, being in a government sanitarium. He said, they didn't know that serving as a missionary, I was just as broke as they were. I was quite discouraged, he said, with being sick and having everyone angry at me, not being able to witness because of the language barrier, and no one even bothered to take a track or a gospel of John. The first few nights, he said, I would wake up around 2 a.m. coughing. One morning, as I was going through my coughing spell, I noticed one of the older and certainly sicker patients across the aisle trying to get out of bed. He would sit up on the edge of the bed and try to stand, but because of weakness, would fall back into bed. I really didn't understand what was happening or what he was trying to do. He finally fell back into the bed, exhausted, and then I heard him begin to cry softly. The next morning I realized what the man was trying to do. He was simply trying to get up and walk to the bathroom. Because of his sickness and extreme weakness, he was unable to do this. And being so ill, he simply relieved himself in the bed. The next morning, the stench in our ward was awful. Most of the other patients yelled insults at the man because of the smell. The nurses were extremely uh, aggravated and angry because they had to clean up the mess and moved him roughly from side to side to take care of the problem. One of the nurses, in her anger, even slapped him. The man, terribly embarrassed, just curled up into a ball and wept. The next night, also around 2 a.m., I again woke up coughing I noticed the man across the aisle sit up again and try to make his way to the bathroom. However, still being in so weak, and, and he, he fell back, whippering as, as the night before. I'm just like most of you, he said. I don't like bad smells. I didn't want to become involved. I was sick myself, but before I realized what had happened, not knowing why I did it, I got up out of my bed and went over to the old man. He was still crying and, and did not hear me approach. As I reached down and touched his shoulder, his eyes opened with a fearful, questioning look. I simply smiled, put my arm under his head and neck, and my other arm under his legs, and picked him up. 
Even though I was sick and weak, I was certainly stronger than he was. He was extremely light because of his old age and advanced TB. I walked down the hall to the bathroom, which was really just a smelly, filthy, small room with a hole in the floor. I stood behind him with my arms under his arms, holding him so he could take care of himself. After he finished, I picked up and carried him back to his bed. And as I began to lay him down with my head next to his, he kissed me on my cheek, smiled and said something which I supposed was, thank you. It was amazing what happened the next morning. One of the other patients, whom I didn't know, woke me around four with a steaming cup of delicious Indian tea. He, He then made motions with his hands, he knew no English, indicating that he wanted a track. As the sun came up, some of the other patients began to approach, motioning that they too also would like booklets. I had tried to distribute them before, but no one would take them, but they were all coming. And throughout the day, people came to me asking for the gospel booklets. This included nurses, hospital interns, the doctors, until everybody in the hospital had a track or booklet of the gospel of John. Over the next few days, several indicated that they trusted Christ as their Savior. And as a result of reading the good news, What did it take to reach these people with the good news of salvation in Christ? It certainly wasn't health. It definitely wasn't the ability to speak or to give an intellectual moving discourse. Health and the ability to communicate to other cultures and peoples are all very important. But what did God use to open their hearts to the gospel? I simply took an old man to the bathroom. And anyone could have done that. You know, when I, when I look at that, when I look at the story here that we just went and we covered, that Paul is writing to Timothy, encouraging Timothy in the faith. You know, whenever God takes away his servant, he always rises someone else up to take his place. And that was going to be Timothy. Paul could have made every excuse in the book he faced more struggles and heartaches than, than, and, and trials and persecutions than we've ever faced and maybe we never will face. And up until his death, he's serving God. He's pouring out his life as a sacrifice, as he says. And he's come to the end of his life. And I wonder, when we come to the end of ours, could we say, as Paul did, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the testimony.